Welcome to the Value Add Podcast, where we talk with various entrepreneurs, real estate professionals, and innovators who are aiming to add value to the world. All right, so I have Brian Walker here. Uh, he's a recruiter over at Bungie. Um, how are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, no problem. I think you add a lot of value via your perspective in the recruiting business. And I think you're just also in a really cool business yourself with just being in the video game sector. And it's obviously a growing sector um, just in our ever technological world. And uh, with Fortnite, with Apex, Warfare, um, Twitch, and all these other different streaming platforms and the rise of esports. And I think you're just going to provide a great perspective to people, man. So um, I just kind of want to start off like, what got you? into the recruitment game i mean yeah it's uh it's an interesting course to chart because i i didn't know that recruiting was a thing right like no one i think we kind of joke amongst ourselves the the recruiting community Uh, no one goes to college to be a recruiter right no one majors in in recruiting some people major in in hr um, of which recruiting is kind of a subset but um I kind of fell into it, right? And and this may kind of jive with with um, some of your your background and understanding. But yeah. uh, coming out of college in in 2010, the job market was so bad, um, and you know did what I think a lot of people did, which was spend six months basement dwelling, applying for jobs, striking out all over the place. Um, and a, a friend of mine from college actually um, reached out to me because he had gotten a job at uh, an agency, right? So just like marketing has agencies and you know ad agencies um that uh major corporations will sort of outsource that work to recruiting Mm -hmm. is the same way and um interviewed with this company uh and it was it was a meat grinder i mean a lot of people you know kind of compare the recruiting agency life to the movie boiler room if you've ever seen it um you know certainly some some wolf of wall street like undertones and personalities there um, and so that's where I really cut my teeth for the first three years of my career, um, commission based, like high volume, uh, recruiting for various corporations in and around the Seattle area, uh, which is where I'm based. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a super steep learning curve because I started out doing industrial trades. So, you know, welders and forklift drivers and machinists and all types of things, um, very industrial, like blue collar skill sets. Um, and because of that, right, because we would hire a $12 an hour forklift driver to, yeah. to make our bread. I mean, you had to place sometimes 10 of these people a week. And so um, it was, it was challenging. Um, but how are you getting out to these people? Like, how are you contacting them? You know, and, and it's, it's funny because they're, because the it wasn't really LinkedIn. Changed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It wasn't LinkedIn. Uh, I mean, we would do, we would do open houses. Uh, we partnered with the Washington WorkSource, which is a, like a government-funded employment agency. Uh-huh. Um, so we would partner with those types of folks. Uh, we would sometimes cruise through, uh, you know, Monster.com. Uh, we would even look on Craigslist at the time. Uh, so, you know, LinkedIn was still kind of in its infancy. Um, and for the types of folks we were looking for, a lot of them didn't have resumes. They weren't on these different uh, social networks, and so it was a lot more, you know, kind of pounding the pavement and, and legwork to find people at that time. 
Well, how many calls were you making a day? Was it all calls or was it all emails or like what was kind yeah, of the it was, volume? It was all calls. I mean, the, the office was very much set up kind of like a call center. Um, we, yeah. we had a, an area where all of the recruiters sat that was referred to as the pit. You know, yeah. Low, low walls and you were on your phone. They had the little shoulder rests so you could be taking notes as you went. Um, and it, I mean, it was the expectation at the time was that we were doing 50 or so um, conversations, right? Getting people on the phone, asking them about their skill sets and backgrounds and compensation expectations, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the expectation was that we were doing 50 of those a week. Um, okay. And then there's a whole funnel, right? So from those 50, how many people do you actually submit their resumes to our clients? How many end up getting interviews? And then hopefully, right, that, that equals a high number of people that actually end up getting hired. Yeah. Um, so wait, I want to so back up because I love talking about numbers and sales funnels because I think yeah. a lot of people don't really understand what it really takes to get a deal done or to get paid like in your mm -hmm. situation. So of those 50 conversations, how many calls do you think you had to get in a, in a variety range, like a thousand? Oh man. I, you know, it, I don't know if it, if it would be a thousand, but certainly a couple hundred. Um, you know, employment is one of those things that like, it's a product that everybody wants. Uh, yeah. And so when you're reaching out to people and, and that's kind of the promise, we tended to get a, a fairly good response. Um, in some cases, you know, they would be people who weren't wholly interested in switching jobs or, uh, but you know, they'd want to hear what you had to say. Um, so getting people on the phone wasn't always the tough part. Um, you know, how you pitched an opportunity and whether or not they wanted to move forward with it was sometimes a stickier proposition. Yeah. So you'd go from probably like call it 200, maybe 300 calls down to get 50 conversations. And then what was the funnel after that? So from 50 conversations, how much does it cost to like, whether was it appointments or was it interviews or was it like, yeah. how did you play it and what was the yeah, process? So we were, you know, we were in uh, again, like a third party recruitment service. And so we would work with various corporations in the area, like you know, big clients might've included um, T-Mobile, um, Coinstar, right? That make the coin yeah. collecting machines and grocery stores. They're based here in, in the Seattle area. Uh -huh. um, Starbucks was a big client of mine. Uh, when I was on the industrial side, Milgard doors and windows, you know, like these types yeah. of places. Um, and so, you know, you, you would have a position from them that you were recruiting against and you would send them resumes once you would talk to these folks and um, decided that they met the criteria. Uh, and that would, you know, 50 conversations might lead to 10 submittals. Um, we had some, some clients, some customers that would allow us to just send people to work. Like it, Brian, if you think just like show good, up, have them show up at six 30 tomorrow morning for work on the production line. What? Yeah. And sometimes we do, we do walk-ins like I'd get up, you know, and again, I'm seven months out of college. I would get in my beat up, you know, beater car, drive across town to meet these grizzly welders at 6 a.m. before they went into their job. Um, or, you know, we'd have people, um, you know, because we'd administer background checks and, yeah. uh, and drug screens, too, um, for a lot of customers. And so I can only imagine. Uh huh. And yeah, the mechanical so trade. Yeah. But so those 10 submittals and would probably get you one like job landing or those 10 submittals? Yeah, that was yeah. the idea, right? We, we'd be placing, you know, 10 submittals. They'd say, okay, you know, these three look good. Let's arrange interviews. And then of those three, we'll choose one. Okay, sick. Okay, so say that you got one sale. What was the commission like on the one sale? 
Um, yeah, so it, it was a bit of a complex model, but they would pay out commissions essentially based on the revenue that you brought into the company, right? Yeah. So your weekly billings, if you think about it that way, and okay. you earned 3% on all of the billings from $3,000 to $7,000 that you brought in. Oh my God. And then That's from 7000 to 12000 you'd earn, I think it was 5%. And then everything over 12,000 in billings, you'd earn like 7%. Okay. And then if you averaged a certain amount throughout the quarter and then throughout the year, there'd be a bonus, bonus checks, right? So there were some people that had major accounts or government contracts and they'd be doing $40,000 in billing a week. Um, and at the end of the year, they'd cut you a check for your average. So you'd get a $40,000 check. Um, and That's great. And then you'd also get a quarterly check. For, for a quarter of that, right? So you, yeah. you might get $80,000 in bonuses if you had one of those big accounts. So it was a really interesting kind of disparity because you'd have people like myself, fresh out of college, trying to make it, you know, yeah. 14 bucks an hour, or 15 bucks an hour plus commission. Yeah. And then you'd have people that were easily pulling in two or $300,000 servicing these big accounts. But how long did it take them to get there? Couldn't have just been like right out the gate and gotten lucky. It had to be like, oh, you have to be in the industry for three, five, ten years yeah, in order to get these accounts. It did. I mean, it took some time. Every now and then, you know, someone would lay a golden egg, right? We'd get a yeah. call from a, a Baltimore field office and they'd say, hey, you know, we have this customer out here. They're opening up a Seattle office. They already use us. So here you go. And, and it would, you know, they'd automatically walk in. But yeah, I mean, the people that supported companies like Amazon, they were grinding for years, right? Some pretty yeah. lean years. And then finally got it up to where it was, it was paying the bills well enough that, you know, they, they are still there. They're still working there. They would never leave, right? Um, well, Jesus. Okay. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty gnarly. But why did you leave? Um, so then, you know, three and a half years in, I got the opportunity to go from agency recruiting to corporate recruiting, which, um, you know, is, is in my opinion, kind of the promised land. I mean, it was, you know, it was a grind working for those commissions and trying to put people to work. And then oftentimes, you know, you were dealing with all of these extenuating circumstances, right? You're fighting for business. You had to get people to actually answer those calls. Uh, you know, sometimes customers wouldn't give us the time of day. Uh, and so, you know, unless you're bringing in new business, right, you always had to be filling and refilling these positions. Um, and then the opportunity to really go in house and kind of be on the other side of that wall was super appealing to me, right? Okay. Um, you know, the ability to call and rather than say, hey, I'm from XYZ staffing agency, you know, temp agency, to then being able to say, this is Brian from Microsoft, or this is Brian from Amazon, um, you know, the, the brand recognition and the opportunity to really connect high profile job seekers with really fulfilling job opportunities at marquee companies was just the, you know, the brand of connection that I was looking to make. Um, and so I, I had that opportunity to, to, to do that. So did you get recruited by these people or did you get, um, or did you, were you actively searching to make a transition in the space? Um, yeah, I, you know, so it, I kind of mentioned one of our, one of our big customers was Amazon. Uh, yeah. and, and because of the way that we, we serve, we were an approved vendor on a list. And so we had access to all of their open positions, um, including recruiting roles. And so, um, by virtue of kind of being a, a part of that, um, 
support team <laughs> found a role that had opened um, and was able to sort of network my way into that hiring community at Amazon. Um, and so was able to, to sort of secure myself a role uh, by, by getting connected with those, with those people. Um, so it was, it, it, you know, was an opportunity with a super desirable client um, that I was able to kind of leverage a, an existing relationship for. Um, and from there, you know, I think like with a lot of things, once, once I had my foot in the door, Right. And once I had that company name on my resume, um, I was able to sort of leverage that into various other opportunities that, you know, eventually got me to Bungie. That's awesome. So you went to this company and then you said, were you actually at Microsoft? I was. Yeah. So, so you went from this company, then to Microsoft, then to Bungie. How is it like working in a big corporate environment like Microsoft? Uh, it's, I mean, it is both amazing. Um, and at times a little discouraging, right? I, um, for the record, I love Microsoft. I loved working there. I think the company mission and vision and values are tremendous. The CEO is just head and above anybody else um, in, in tech right now, I think. Um, you know, it, it's difficult. Anytime you have a company of a certain size, you know, Microsoft is 120,000. That's a behemoth. It's a behemoth. That's a behemoth. And to, to run a company that size, you have to have, you know, structure and systems in place to manage that many people, um, which is kind of a necessary evil, but for rank and file employees on the front line, right? It, it's tough sometimes to, to see the, the effect of, of your work, right? It, it's tough to feel like more than a cog in the machine. Um, so, you know, eventually, right, I was there. And, and again, through the virtue of connections that I had made along my career journey, um, someone from Bungie reached out to me and said, hey, we have this position. Um, and I, through the interview process, learned as much as I could about the company and size and mm -hmm. culture and direction that it was going and felt that it would be kind of a fun adventure. Um, and so I have so far really been enjoying the chance to work somewhere that just has a little bit more transparency, very clear line of sight to leadership, um, weekly town hall meetings, you know, where they crowdsource um, questions from the employees and then answer them in real time on stream. Uh, yeah. So all of those types of things uh, just make you feel a little bit more part of it, right? There's more ownership over the product and direction of, of yeah. the company. And so that has been um, nice because it's, it's tough to really affect change somewhere, you know, like yeah. Microsoft. No, yeah, cause Microsoft's a, a company of 120,000 and Bungie's about what? 800. Yeah. yeah and so you're talking about a company like 150 times the size and the corporatization of the company. Did you, and, and do you see a lot of people coming like, Hey, like, you know, in investment banking, you got to really grind it out for some of these agencies. Then you can, after three years of the grind, you can go be now a managing director or some vice president and kind of cruise, not cruise, but still work hard, but you aren't the grunt, um, carrying all the work. And then you just kind of get recruited by these other companies or like, Hey, like, let's go, come on, man. Like you, yeah. you did your time here. Now, now come live the dream, uh, with something yeah. that you actually want to do. Yeah, I think that's the model for for a lot of industries, right? I mean, recruiting agencies ended up being that way. Um, I think, you know, a lot of consulting businesses, Slalom and KPMG and, and these types of places are, are that way. Like if you can make it in the consulting world, you know, living out of your suitcase, working for different clients for a few years, um, integrating yourself into a larger corporation where things are a little bit more stable, um, you know, is is an easier prospect. And then once you have a few of those marquee companies on, on your resume, uh, you as a product become much more marketable when, when other institutions can call in, right? 
Yeah, I do. I do agree with that. And then kind of from a recruiter's approach, like, how do you do your job? You don't have to give us the whole secret sauce, but like, what, like, what's your day like? Like what kind of, what's the life of Brian Walker? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, there are two, two aspects to it, right? I mean, I think about it both in terms of kind of the, the job seeker uh, experience, right? Like that kind of um, candidate life cycle from the time you apply to the time you start a new job and all of the steps along the way, interviews and, um, you know, uh, programming tests and background checks and all the things that happen there in between. Um, so I'm what many would refer to as a full cycle recruiter. So I own that process from start to finish. Um, so that's, you know, kind of one aspect. And then the back end of that is my, my customers, the people that I service are hiring managers, right? They're people with open jobs that need them filled in order to meet their deliverables. Um, and so there's a whole aspect of kind of account management and servicing that goes on um, and helping those hiring managers meet their goals, which are ultimately to bring more people on and get work done and, and uh, you know, manage them and, and ship products out the door, right? In, the, in this case, video games. Yeah. Um, so what that would, would look like kind of in practice, you know, on, on the recruiter side, um, you know, I look at a lot of resumes for a company like Bungie or Microsoft, we get a ton of applications. How much, okay, I always love asking this question, yeah. how much time do you spend on a resume? Like in the door, like 30 seconds, a minute, um, less? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, um, it's a tough question and I, it's kind of a touchy subject because I know people get like riled up when you say you only look, I spent days on this and you know paid someone a thousand dollars to help me format it and you only spend 30 seconds on it um and the reality is like it, yeah that's kind of true but you know like you you've been doing your job for years now right yeah. um I mean and, and if you have a, a proposal that comes in or a property that you're looking at I mean how long before you know whether or not it's a lemon Oh, almost instantaneously. Almost I could just look at the right? gut check. You have a gut check numbers. I can analyze the deal if it's worth me underwriting it within probably 15 seconds, right. 15 seconds to a minute. Like just there's few numbers that you need. Yeah. Cause I do a lot of back of the napkin. Like if I can't mm -hmm. make it work on the back of the napkin in my industry, it doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. I mean, I totally understand your process, but what makes a resume like stand out to you? Yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, I, I think that there. Like, or do you, or do you like when you get like, Oh, I got a stack of 100 today. Oh, this isn't, I'll look at this again. Nope. Yes. No. Yes. Yeah. Is that kind of how it goes? And then you actually look deeper. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you filter out the clear misses, right? The, um, so, and I'll, I don't want to disparage any, any particular vocations, but, um, for me, I'm looking for experienced engineers, right? People who, yeah. who can program in specific languages, ideally have worked on video games, but not necessarily a requirement. Okay. Um, and so you will get people that apply and they are, you know, they, they work in fast food, they work at a grocery store and they like, they just have no business applying, but they're shooting their shot. Right. Um, so you kind of call the very clear, obvious ones first. Um, there are some that are maybes, um, and I'll generally kind of leave them untouched. Um, and then there are some that are clear yeses, like this person has worked at Blizzard Activision or Microsoft or Riot or Epic Games, you know, again, marquee companies, right? And they've been doing this job somewhere else that we respect the heck out of. It's a clear yes. Um, and so we'll move those people forward. Uh, and then all of the maybes will kind of circle back to, right? Um, usually in conjunction with the hiring manager, like, hey, 
this person checks most of the boxes. What do you think? How much bandwidth do we have to kind of stray from, from the job requirements? Can you, can you train this person on the one thing they don't have or not, right? And then usually that will kind of be our North Star for whether those people ultimately get moved forward, uh, get rejected, or whether they're kind of a, you know, let's see how those batch of A-plus people work out. Yeah. And if none of those end up filling this role, then we can come back to the people that were sort of um, on the back burner. Okay, that's 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 really interesting, actually. But so it's just those key metrics. And then I got to ask, like, are you getting like on these resumes? Are they coming from Monster.com, Indeed, and all these big job sources, or like, does it does it a preference if it comes from one of those like kind of online platforms or direct from your website? Like, is there any difference in that? Um, there's, I don't I don't necessarily. Um, I wouldn't disqualify anyone based on how their resume came to me, right? Okay. Um, I think for, you know, a video game studio that's pretty well respected in the industry, we get a ton of people that come to careers.bungie.com and apply um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they're, they're seeking out opportunities to work with us. Um, so we get a fair amount of traffic. Um, a lot of websites, the monsters and indeeds of the world, um, will actually, you know, it's, it's all automated on the back end, but they'll scrape jobs directly to them. Um, and then, you know, when you go to monster and you see a bungee job and you click apply, it will redirect you to our career site. So okay. we'll kind of know where people came from, but the end is all the same. Right. Yeah. Um, and for, it really varies because we'll have jobs that will get 500 applications, you know, in, in a month's time. Um, and I, I know that I won't need to do much active work to fill those roles besides filtering out and communicating with people. Yeah. But then we'll have jobs that will get three applications, you know, a month. And yeah. for those, I know that the, the chance that a senior graphics engineer with 10 years of experience doing rendering, um, you know, in game engines from a, a top tier game studio is probably going to be pretty low. Like those people are highly yeah. coveted. They're generally very well taken care of because no one wants to lose one. Yeah. Um, and so they probably aren't going to walk in off the street. And so for those, I know that there's going to be a much more active process to finding those people, reaching out to them and getting them interested in any position that we might have. So that's pretty interesting. And on those roles, like how do you really get them over? Like are you like you aren't just sending them an in-mail on LinkedIn, right? Are you like are you like writing them letters? You give them calls, text messages, doing the whole bombardment of stuff, yeah. sending them fruit baskets. I have no idea. I'm just asking out. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's kind of all of those things, right? I mean, right, yeah. right tool for the job. Um, I I do a, a ton of work on LinkedIn. I mean, if if people aren't on LinkedIn, but you have aspirations to get your career somewhere other than where it is, I think that is the first recommendation I would make. Um, because it's probably the most heavily used tool from people who do what I do. Um, and it's the fastest growing social network for job seekers. So it's just, it's kind of table stakes at, at this point. Um, so I, I will do a ton of searching and outreach um, on LinkedIn. You know, people who are highly coveted, again, they'll, they'll hear from people like me a thousand times a day. Um, I think the, the trick is to you know, be thoughtful and um, tailored in your approach in a way that doesn't feel boilerplated. You know, mm-hmm. I, we probably all had, maybe not, but I think a lot of people have experienced a template, you know, that you've gotten and it has someone else's name on it or it has the wrong job title. Or yeah, or it's just, hi, hi, you. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, you. How are you doing? And you're like, is this spam? Like, right. I don't even want to look at this. Yeah. Uh, and so taking the time to read someone's background, right, really understand what they do. Um, 
and write a message that again, like brings that up and, and sort of brings to the forefront why they're a fit for whatever role it is you're hiring for um, improves your rate of response. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've tried to leverage hiring managers and leaders from the company to do that outreach on our behalf. Because for a lot of folks, messages from recruiters, just like sales calls, right? Mm -hmm. They go straight to voicemail, right? They get thrown in the trash. Um, but it makes a lot of difference if uh, an engineering leader can reach out and say, look, I, I looked at your profile. I, I do what you do or I understand what you do very well. Uh, and I'm intentionally reaching out to you because you're a fit for this role and I'd love to talk to you about it. Like that is super impactful um, and tends to get better results than just having Brian, the recruiter, send, you know, a thousand in-mails. Um, it's always the quality, man. I mean, yeah. we even do it in our house business and stuff like that. I've noticed when I really take the time to understand somebody's situation, um, I'll get more of a well response to it and they'll actually like care about me rather than like, oh, hi, are you trying to sell a house? And um, they're just kind of annoyed by it because they get dozens of those calls yep. a day and it's how do you segment yourself? It does take more time, yeah. but the conversion rate I feel like is a lot higher than just the massive bombardment. Both yep. have their applications to what you're doing for exactly what you're saying in the type of roles, but I'm always a, a quality type of guy. But how do you... Like, can you give me just a very generic situation of like maybe the process of right? I've personally reached out to you. You like flowers or you like this mm -hmm. or like, oh, I worked at this. Here's the commonality. Let's make this common trait. Um, how have you, I don't want to use the word poached, but recruited somebody from a competitor over to Bungie or over to one of these other companies? Yeah. And was it, because it, it can't just be about the money or maybe it is. I, I don't yeah. know, but I think for a lot of these guys in the space, it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever we get, whenever I get someone on, on the phone, you know, and there's, there's all of the typical recruiter talk. I mean, I, I always start by telling people, look, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a game designer. I'm not an artist. I'm none of those things. Like I'm your friendly neighborhood recruiter. Um, and so this is going to be a super casual conversation. I'm not going to get into the weeds on anything because frankly, I, I can't do what you do. Like I wouldn't understand it. Um, so what I really want to do is understand what you've been doing what motivates you, like what you're looking to do with your career. And then I want to answer any questions you have about Bungie, about our company. Okay. Um, and in the course of that conversation, I will usually ask a question, something to the tune of like, what types of things do you look for in a company? Mm -hmm. What is your dream job? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, maybe you're actively job searching, maybe you're not, but like what kind of parameters do you put on your job search? Right. So when yeah. you sit down and say, I'm going to find a job, like how do you conduct that search? Uh, and, and the idea is that you, you hopefully get to a pretty succinct list of like what motivates this person, right? Why did they accept my message? Why did they apply this job? Um, what would make them leave their current situation, which is maybe great. Um, mm -hmm. and then those are the things that you constantly refer back to throughout the process, right? I know that this person has two kids he's trying to put through college. I know that this person is unhappy with the amount of work that they are doing, right? With the video game industry has a huge problem with crunch culture, like making people work, you know, 80 hours a week or, you know, some type of ridiculous yeah. amount of overtime to get products shipped on time. Um, this year, more than ever, you've seen a ton of games get delayed because of people working from home and all of the, the struggles that that presents. Do you think um, there's a poor compensation involved in all of this with these 80 hours a week? 
Um, are they getting paid? Are they paid on salary? Or are they paid yeah, on like performance? Yeah, so or most, most yeah. people are paid on salary. Um, and so you're right. I mean, it's a ton of work, and you're not. I mean, you're not making overtime, right? No. Um, there are video games do have a pretty robust culture of of contract employees. So there are people that are paid hourly. Um, there are news stories, pretty recent, pretty fresh news stories um, about studios that are facing you know pretty valid concerns from their employees about fair compensation um and so you know that is certainly a motivator at times um and then once you get to this list of things you refer back to it throughout the process and those become your talking points right like if Mm -hmm. if this person is concerned about work-life balance um i know that you know i should talk about our pto plan i know that i should talk about you know our company's crunch policies and and like those become talking points and and by extension selling points uh, all throughout the conversation right yeah no i think that is true and do you think i'm always curious about this because i feel like it's very industry specific i was just talking with somebody that they had to lay off 20 30 people but it was because their margins just weren't making it or they the margins are now making it but they aren't going to bring back on those 20 30 people because they're now trying to get out of their uh, bank credit to get better financing in the video game industry i know it's very wide and disparity but do you think that companies can actually pay these people more or do you think the margins are so thin that they're barely making a buy the c the c-suite execs aren't really making a lot of money and um that's just the nature of the business. Or do you think the C-suite, C-suite execs are really getting the profits and the benefits yeah. and everything else? And then the little men are just getting, oh, no, we're grinding. We're going to grind and spit you out. We don't care. You're just a number to us. Yeah, I, I think that video games, maybe more, you know, maybe more than a lot of industries is, um, I mean, there's such a spectrum, right? You have yeah. indie studios with six people and it's, you know, kind of reminiscent of early tech days. Like you've got six people in a basement making a game and, you know, firing up Kickstarters and doing these types of things to fund their projects. Um, And so that is a very real thing. And unfortunately, it's also tough to make a game. And so it's not uncommon for people to invest a bunch of money in these projects and then they flop. And, you know, also in the news right now, you know, putting an app on the app store, um, you know, publishers take a huge cut. Um, oh yeah. With Apple and, and Fortnite, this whole mm-hmm. issue going on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, think about if you're a studio of six people and you invest your own time and money and love and, you know, blood, sweat and tears into a game. And then Apple takes a 30% cut, um, or, you know, the platforms do the same thing. So I'm not singling them out. That's just kind of industry standard. Um, yeah. So it, the, the costs of operating that business are, are huge. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, there are companies, um, you know, Activision Blizzard is one that like they're, that was a big one. That was, I've seen some, I've seen them some big articles come about them recently. And so, you know, I think that there are, there are things there about the bonuses that their execs are receiving, just like any big, big company probably has to to stand up and, and kind of deliver on. Um, so it, it's tough. I mean, the other thing is that a lot of these, you know, game, game companies are tech companies. Right. And 100%. a lot of them exist in markets like Seattle and the Bay Area, mm-hmm. where, you know, cost of living has skyrocketed. Um, you know, it, it, housing is unreasonably expensive. And so it, it, it's, you know, you 
paying a living wage to 800 employees or a thousand employees or 20,000 employees um, Rough. That adds up. in the Bay area. Right. I mean, it, it's crazy. And so I think that's where a lot of these complaints from folks are coming um, is that, you know, like, look, you just can't live on 30 bucks an hour. It's not, you know, it's not tenable. That's shocking. Yeah. That, that's, that's 30 bucks an hour and you can't live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, when we deal with it all the time, just you even see with minimum wage, how people can barely survive when people are now complaining that I can't survive with 30 bucks. And it's true. You hear about some of these stories in the Bay area or even Seattle where it's like, no, I'm making 200 grand a year and I'm poor. Yeah. And there was, there was an article that hit the news up here not too long ago. And it talked about just the, you know, the cost of living. I mean, just housing in, in Seattle and in Bellevue, they, they looked at both, um, which are kind of, you know, similar. Yeah. Um, and I, I think Seattle was 100K and Bellevue was, I think, 130 or 140. Oh, wow. Um, just to pick, you know, like average rent is 2,400 bucks a month. And so like when you multiply that out, you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's. That, that adds up, man. That, yeah. that, you, you, that, that just sucks. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. Yeah. But do you like to get, I, I guess in this COVID environment, are you guys allowing everybody to work from home? Like the office doesn't exist or, or what's going yeah, on? So we, um, you know, in, in March, right about when everybody kind of made this shift, um, we sent everybody home, right? Send everybody um, work from home. And I, I, I want to talk about that just a little bit yeah. because, you know, for, I was, I worked at Microsoft and kind of transitioned actually right about the time all of this stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Microsoft, again, huge corporation, they manufacture their own hardware, right? So every employee at Microsoft gets a, a Surface laptop when they start. So it was yeah. pretty easy for a company like Microsoft to say, just take the laptop we gave you and go oh. home, right? I mean, the infrastructure is-, is I know what you're, yeah, go on. Um, but then at a, at a smaller company, right, and at a game studio where we develop video games that run on expensive gaming hardware, the majority of our studio had gaming desktops. Um, and so you can't take those home. Right. And, and yeah, so it's a liability for you guys. A pretty significant investment in like, well, we need to buy everybody gaming laptops and we need to, you know, invest in our infrastructure and, you know, how do we, it, you know, VPN everybody in and have like all of these tools and builds accessible. Um, you can go, there were some, there were some stories about how um, early on we did a bunch of play testing using Google Stadia uh, as Whoa. a way to, you know, give people remote access to early builds of the game so that we could squash bugs before it, it launched. Um, so, you know, having to get creative and invest in other technologies and tools and things um, was a huge piece of it. So we are to this day still 100% remote. Um, everybody's is working from home. There is a plan to return to the office whenever that is feasible, according to, you know, reopening plans. Um, and I think that at the highest levels, the, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what does that look like? I mean, there, there is a, a range here and you've got companies like Twitter on the one hand saying everybody can work from home forever, you know, yeah. let's sell off our office space. Um, y'all do what you do. Um, and then you probably have companies that are, you know, stingy and don't think that employees can be trusted. And as soon as they reopen, like they're going to make everybody come back to the office. 100%. Um, you know, I think what's tough about video game development is it's a highly collaborative and extremely creative process. And so, you know, it's difficult for people to operate sort of in a silo um, because, 
you know, the game designers have to pitch ideas to the engineers, and then that has to match up with what the narrative team is pitching. So all of these moving parts need to kind of work in concert. And that's just tough to do when people are in different time zones and all across the country. So, you know, we, we believe that there is a, a creative and, um, you know, a creative heart and, and brain that mm-hmm. is this company and that will be a physical location that is the studio um you know are you guys have, in what's what's your office building structure um or you guys own the building do you own the buildings we lease, okay you lease yeah. it and then is it like a a two-story building a one-story are you in a high rise and you guys have got a few floors what does that structure look like yeah so we have a few floors in a high rise it isn't that high it's in downtown Bellevue. Um, but how many floors do you think like 10 yeah, so like, I think, um, no, we've got, we've got two floors in that building and then we have another floor actually in a different building. Okay. Um, we're currently, and, and this was sort of timely and helpful, but we, um, we are going through an office remodel. So it was nice because perfect in the office right now. Um, so they're working on plans to consolidate that space and hopefully get everybody back under one roof, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, on a couple of floors of, of one building. Um, are you guys looking, looking to expand your office space because now you have to socially distance practice or are you guys looking to constrain? Cause this is always a yeah. fun question. Right yeah. Now. So, so what had been just kind of a, you know, well, we're gonna, we're gonna move some desks around now became, Oh, well we need to install a new air filtration system. And you know, how much space do we need? You know, if we can't have our desks as close together and where do we put uh, hand sanitizing stations and where is our, health check person going to be uh-huh. in the lobby and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it has certainly, um, you know, taken on a, a post COVID uh, feel right now that we're not just sort of updating and refreshing our office space to make it new and fun. We also have to do all of that in the context of a global pandemic and all the aftermath. Yeah, no. And I, the reason I asked about how tall your building is because in my space, I think high rise office is screwed because yeah. when you have, uh, like I live in, I, I don't live, I work in an 18 story building. Um, and they're limiting your elevator capacity to now four people. Whereas before you'd cram oh, yeah. 12, 20 people inside an elevator. Now you're only limiting it to two or four. The logistics of it, getting a hundred people right. up 10, 10 floors or whatever. And mm-hmm. with only four people or two people in an elevator, that's going to take somebody an hour to two hours to get just into the office without yeah. a commute. Yep. So I always ask that for people is uh, we're seeing a rise of suburbanization in the office market. And I don't know what's going to happen in these high rise spaces. I don't know. And they're even talking about like, Oh, group A is coming in eight to five on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Group B is mm-hmm. Tuesdays and Thursdays, eight to five or whatever that structure is. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's just why I was kind of asking. Yeah. And, I yeah, and so to, to add a little more clarity in that context, we are on the second floor of a building that like, has escalators so you can walk oh okay oh you're fine the street right oh there you go Um, but the other thing that i wanted to point out too because this has come up in our internal conversations is think about the impact that all this is going to have on you know the the disabled community right like oh my gosh so if you think about elevators and you know i mean and what does that mean right are our buildings less accessible now do we have less ways to get people like how how do people physically navigate these spaces that now have to change yeah, I don't really know how that's going to look like. Uh, I, I think we're seeing 
I mean, you have companies, we don't know if office is going to expand or if it's going to contract. Um, I think it's just really very market dependent. Um, like, I mean, you got places like New York where there's this mass exodus and yeah. places like the Bay where the cost of living is so high, they're like, screw it. Like, just get out of here. Yeah. Um, and the taxes of everything, Washington's a tax friendly state relatively, but places like California and New York where they're tax heavy is just brutal. People are like, no, I'm heading down to Florida. And um, I, I'm curious, I understand that's why I've all, my biggest kind of debate and argument I have for people of this whole work from home is how do you foster a workplace culture? Like, how do you foster a collaborative and creative environment where, Hey, let me go talk to Brian about like this new creative recruiting technique that I'm thinking of just kind of bounce walls off the ideas where I don't have to set up a zoom call and, and kind of feel that human social connection because at the end of the day, we are pack animals. Yeah. Because of technology, we've been able to become a little bit more isolated and lonely and comfortable being isolated and lonely. But at the end of the day, we still crave inherently at least a little bit of human connection and collaboration so for you guys i'd love to hear um how you're kind of overcoming that and like how you're keeping that workplace culture together especially bringing on these new hires yeah it, it's um i mean it's been challenging right and, and not long ago i i was the new hire um so kind of yeah. went through it um myself and it's it's been interesting right you know there's there's very much this idea of like how do we replace water cooler talk right and, and i don't know uh, <laughs> and it's, it, I mean, you're right. It's such, yeah, every job that I've worked in, I mean, that ability to plop down in someone's office or, you know, run to the cafeteria with them. I like business gets done over lunch. Right. And, and yeah. so when you sort of take that out of the equation, what's a reasonable facsimile? Um, yeah. So, you know, we're, I mean, I think obviously technology is, is a huge tool here, video conferencing, Microsoft Teams and Zoom and, you know, mm -hmm. life size. I mean, it seems like there's about a million of these different products now. Um, I, I think I, you know, had been a Teams user before, and now I have Teams, Slack, Zoom, and LifeSize. The whole nine. All, you know, the whole nine. And it's, uh, it's I, I had an email a while ago from somebody that said, like, hey, I set up a Slack. It's like Microsoft Teams. I'm going to arrange a Zoom call for us to talk about it. And I was like, I, you, yeah, you just blew my mind. I, you've referenced four tools to do almost exactly the same thing there. To, yeah. Anyway, um, so, you know, how do you replace water cooler talk? Um, you know, how do you onboard people in a way that feels genuine and welcoming, right? In, in a new company, like starting a new job is one of the most stressful things you can do as an Hectic adult. As hell. Uh, and so yeah. how do you take some of that angst out of it? And there have been very real things. I talked with one of my managers recently who said, you know, their, their team makeup are, um, you know, fairly young, like mostly unattached people. And so they have their evenings open and they've been able to do team game nights and those oh. types of things and so you know you kind of play with the tools that you have um our um our employee services team has been doing a, a pretty incredible job of putting on events we you know i i love going to trivia right going to a bar yeah. and doing trivia they've it's put on game. i think two trivia nights now which okay i mean and, and so get wrap your head around this so and if you don't understand any of the tools that I'm talking about, let me know. Yeah, but I will. They, we have a, a Discord server, right? Got it. Which is sort of a, a game. It's a chatbot. Chat yeah, bot, it's a chat. Right? Mm -hmm. So everybody's in a Discord server broken up into teams. Got it. And then they're doing a private Twitch stream, this uh, a trivia company that runs these things, right? They do a private Twitch stream where one of their employees, you know, presents the questions and is reading chat in real time. So we're in the Discord server talking amongst ourselves, deliberating, coming up with answers, submitting them via a forms sheet, 
right? Like a, a okay. Google Sheet or a Microsoft Forms. Uh, and then we're hearing the questions from this private Twitch stream that we've all tuned into. And so in that way, we got a company of, you know, or a, a tribute group of like 50, 100 people. I think there were 10 teams of five each. Well, that's um, pretty cool. And, and doing trivia, you know, in, in a way that was like almost a seamless experience. Like it wasn't really that much different than, you know. Were you drinking people. during this? Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, people had beers and like it was great. And so you know, you try and find kind of reasonable facsimiles for, for the activities you would normally do. Um, it, my first week, they they bought the whole team like Uber Eats gift cards and we blocked off an hour at lunch and everybody had food delivered and what would have normally been a walk down to the local sushi joint became everyone getting Uber Eats to their house and sitting on a video call and, you know, having our lunch virtually. So there have been a number of things like that. Um, my boss has been terrific about, you know, hey, I bought you guys a bottle of wine, like you can pick it up from this place at this date and time. Um, so, you know, you, you try and find these things that kind of keep that experience alive a little bit. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think we're all kind of hoping that eventually we go back to normal and we can have some type of in-person event. But in well, the meantime, we yeah. all do the best we can. Right? Yeah, we all do the best we can. We're all in the same situation. It ain't going anywhere anytime soon, it looks like. So just kind of hold down and rock with it. I mean, no concerts, no live sporting events. I'm just happy sports are back. Um, yeah. I, I know you're a big concert guy and a big traveling type of guy. And, and we that's a conversation for another day. But <laughs> Um, do you see roles being permanently work from home for Bungie or do you trying to bring a majority of roles or if not all the roles back? It, it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, I, I think yeah. that, you know, I, I think that we believe that there are situations and, and skill sets that can function remotely, right? That not all of them can. I mean, if, for example, if you are an IT engineer, and you are responsible for keeping our servers up and running because we have an online networked game. Yeah. You need to be in the office, right? Um, 100%. There's no way around know, that so one. So there, there are things that can be done remotely and, and others that cannot. Um, yeah. I think there is a way, and I think a lot of companies do this where they, you know, for, for the right person with a pretty unique skill set, they're willing to, to entertain and, and be flexible. I think what will probably end up being the the norm um, for for companies who can't send everybody home for all eternity, it'll probably be some combination, right? It'll probably be core hours, like hey, you need to be able to be in the office, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from ten to three, okay, um, and then you can work from home Mondays and Fridays, or you know, you get two work from home days and you can decide when they are, but you have to be available for this important thing, um, and so some hybrid, you know, I, I think that we recognize that things will probably never be the same and that kids will be homeschooled. Um, you know, responsibilities are going to change. Like people are pulling double duty, you know, moms and dads are stay at home teachers and employees. And, you know, like every, the number of jobs in everybody's resume has tripled because we're doing everything from our homes. Um, and so I think you'll see more flexibility and understanding and thought put into people being able to do work on their own time and from where is convenient. Um, but again, we, 
I think that we will always have that sort of creative center that is a physical studio so that people can come together and do their best work. Now, the, you talk about an interesting thing and then in your guys' world, you guys are at least able to do some sort of work from home um, component. And I know I, like for call centers, you talk about, I mean, could you imagine being in your agency right now working from home? Uh, like you hear a lot of these call centers because we deal with them as tenants of ours is the infrastructure kind of mm -hmm. put in place. And so a lot of these people don't have Wi-Fi. A lot of these yep. people don't have like gigabytes of internet speed or megabytes of internet speed to be able to hand this type of software capabilities. So these companies are now forced to make these investments, but these may, they're making these investments, not just for the next six months. I think they're trying to make these investments for the next several years yeah. um, as long as technology can keep up. But how is this working? I mean, like in the sense that I got my partner, he has three kids, his wife's a school teacher, but he's my partner helping me flip homes. He's the owner of his brokerage. And is it the same thing up there in Seattle is like where mom and dad are now the homeschool teachers and they're helping their kids on zoom and they're now basically working 14 hour days. Like how is your company reacting to that? And are they being sensitive to that? Um, and is that apparent in your guys's company of it's a very big struggle that a lot of employees are having to overcome or? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that it's certainly on, on a lot of people's minds um, and, and it's very, you know, it impacted their day to day in, in very real and, and noticeable ways. I think that where the rubber really meets the road is, is your corporation going to be the type of place that acknowledges these things and accepts them? Or are you going to be like stuffy about it? Right. And so, yeah. you know, I think that we're the type of company where when, you know, when a kid barges in from the outside or when my dog busts on the webcam, you know, um, like you don't need to feel like you should apologize for that. Right. Like yeah. you, you don't need to apologize for life and being a human and having a family. Um, and those things are just going to intersect with your job and that's okay. And we celebrate it. And that's terrific. Um, you know, and, and I don't think that everywhere is, is like that. And it's one of the things that I, that I love about Bungie. Um, mm -hmm. a quick example of, of kind of what this yeah. sometimes looks like is we, um, for, for a lot of our people who've been here for a long time, we uh, we actually take the the PTO right there, their paid time mm -hmm. off, um, and we break it down into sort of your normal PTO, you know, vacation sick days, and then we actually offer sabbatical leave for our for our senior uh, and up employees. So well, there's kind of this, you know, at game studios, a, a big critique is you know we we work too much, we crunch, we can never in good faith take time off. Um, and then we have this sort of sabbatical program that gives people um, un unlimited, never expiring sabbatical leave, right, that accrues over time. And so if they want to, over the course of a couple of years, rack up a month of sabbatical leave, they can mm -hmm. take it and go and, you know, live on a beach or write the next great American novel or whatever you'd like to do. with. So, but time. it's the sabbatical leave is different from vacation days. Correct. Yeah. So because vacation days uh, will usually expire, right? A yeah. lot of companies, if you don't use them by December 31st, they, they go away. Uh -huh. um, these don't expire um, and you can cash them out if you'd like for, for money uh, at any mm -hmm. point in time. Um, and, and so the idea is that over time you can rack up a significant amount of, of vacation and, and take it and, you know, we mean it. Um, and so there are things like that. Like we, you know, Go and do you like take your vacation, take time, unplug from work. I'm just thinking about how that's going to work because like, has anybody taken a sabbatical like in the crunch time of a, of a game or a publication? Like, is yeah. it just, cause it's, cause where's that timeline? And yeah. does it just depend on like 
because for Bungie, like what's Destiny is probably one of your most prominent games like right now in development is that, okay, once Destiny gets released, you can take sabbatical, but like six months leading up to it, you aren't taking sabbatical. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and there certainly is, is, you know, room there for it to be uh, abused or, or, you know, used at inopportune times. Um, I, there is nothing official right there's nothing in black and white that says when you can or can't take sabbatical no, i believe but, that it's a true but that's yeah that's not what i mean effort by the company there you go but, but there's a workplace you know, culture yeah. standpoint um but you know the other thing is like also as a as a studio we have a, a profit sharing model and so love that and so everyone has a share in the success of the company right which is largely driven by how well our games do um, and so in that way, like you have a vested interest in our games doing well and shipping on time and being well received and bug free and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, because you have skin in the game, I think there's probably a, a commitment to sort of, you know, getting things done, shipping products on time, um, such that you wouldn't, you know, bail and leave everybody in a lurch. Like we're all rowing in the same direction in that way. So on the, I want to touch on the profit sharing thing mm-hmm. is, is how does that work? You hear a lot of companies starting to do that because Bungie's a private or a public company? We are private. Okay, so there's just profit sharing versus stock options. So can you kind of walk us through like a profit sharing, like how it kind of works and does like how with these sabbatical days, do they does that profit sharing accrue over time based on your commitment to the company? And uh, if you leave the company, do you still get a piece of the profit sharing or is that just gone? Yeah, um, so it, it's, only for, yeah. it's only for current employees. Um, and the, the simplest way to describe it is, you know, at the beginning of the year, the, the leadership team and our finance group, they sit down and they come up with a budget for the year, right? What do we think Bungie's going to earn this year? Um, oh. And based on that target, um, you know, there's, there's a profit sharing pool. And if we're at 60% of that budgeted revenue, then the profit sharing pool is X. And if we're at 110% of that revenue target, then the profit share is Y. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it does really sort of tie back into the performance of the company against sort of budgeted um budget revenue um it, it there everyone and we've recently revamped this um this program a little bit to actually make it better um but there everyone is vested um, from the time you come in your first year is prorated so if you join january 1 right you get full 100 percent profit sharing if you yeah. join june one right then you get 50 percent of profit right Does that make sense? there you go yeah um and then in subsequent years you're fully vested right right from the go um okay so it, it's what i like about it is that it's pretty clear um and, and it's it's tied to the company's performance not your performance which i think at other companies i've been at when they have merit-based bonuses um you know it, it then you're in the game of quantifying someone's contributions throughout the year which is always a tricky it's rough and that's that's a really hard thing and it discourages a lot of people i think and and but what do you like more do you because you worked at microsoft and i know they offer stock options but do you like the stock option method or the profit sharing method more yeah, I mean, Microsoft has a, has a great overall comp plan. And, you know, it's interesting because I've been at a few of these tech companies now and, and kind of seen the different comp philosophies in play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, stock is an interesting one because um, you can do some, some unique things with it, right? So mm-hmm. 
um, Amazon, for instance, have has a stock vesting schedule that's very different from Microsoft's, and they're tailored to sort of incentivize different behaviors. Okay. Um, so you can do a very even stock distribution, right? Um, here's a four-year stock award. You get 25% every year. Yeah. Um, or you can do a weighted one, you know, where you get 5% in year one and 40% in year three. And um, those types of things, right? I mean, yeah. if you think about it, you're, you're going to act differently as an employee, depending on those two 100%. models. Um, I like the profit sharing because it takes a lot of the politics out of performance development and individual bonuses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you get bonus based on your level in the organization and based on the performance of the company. So again, everyone wants the company to do well. People are incentivized to, you know, act in ways that, that improve the quality of our, of our games. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you have a, a meritocracy, right, that, that bonuses people based on contributions, you know, I think sometimes you see, infighting you see people sort of struggling or um buying for clout or recognition because they want to be able to stand up at the end of the year and say look what i did i should get a bigger bonus um makes sense yeah and so i've been places where that has created um you know work environments that weren't necessarily conducive to teamwork and collaboration yeah it was more like i'm the show get out of the way right like i'm gonna do whatever i can to maximize my bonus um even or, if it's at your own demise, right? I yeah. don't care. Even if it's at someone else's expense, um, and you know, I, Microsoft does a, a good job of of kind of counterbalancing that by also looking at other things, right? So, in addition to your individual contributions, how did you contribute to the success of others, and how did you leverage the work of others, right? So, there's kind of this idea that if you're playing nice in the sandbox, if you're lifting other people up, and if you're not just spinning up work so that you can say, look what I did, but you're also looking at like, here's something that we have, here's how I've sort of leveraged it and advanced it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, they look at those things and it's kind of more holistic picture um, to avoid some of those kind of infighting tendencies. Well, that's pretty cool. And then I got a question on the profit sharing is, all right, I joined January 1. I'm, I'm in it from the get-go. COVID hits, I'm not saying Bungie laid off people, but Bungie, Bungie lays me off um, in June. So at the end of the year, when the profit sharing distributions are made, do I still get a piece of the company for that six months of work, uh, like a dividend check or no, I'm out. Like I don't get a piece of it because I got laid off. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they calculate profit sharing and then um, everybody who is an employee gets notified what their share of the profit is. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the year, like November timeframe. And then those okay. checks are paid out Q1 of the following year. Um, so it's only for current employees um, who, who would be there. Wow. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. No, no, versus, and it's, no it, make, it makes sense. I'm just kind of curious to see how that model really works. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, to, to contrast it with, say, Microsoft um, or a company that, that is publicly traded and can do yeah, and get stock options. Words, you know, if, if you um, at Microsoft, right, their performance review would be like, you know, you're going to get 10% of your base salary and you're going to get uh, $20,000 in Microsoft shares. Um, but those vest right. over the course of five years. And so if you leave any point before those shares are fully vested, you forfeit them. Um, so there's kind of money left on the table either way, right? No, and, and that's the company's protection. Yeah. And, I, and I totally, you have to understand that. Um, you can't just be like, oh, psych. I signed up for a year and now I'm out. Yeah. Um, or And it's just funny to see the different compensation packages and the difference between private and public companies, the benefits and, and negatives of both. Yeah. Um, it's just cool, man. But 
as far as Brian Walker goes, what, what for you is Bungie here for you indefinitely? Can you really see yourself in this company for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Um, or is this just kind of like, Hey, I eventually want to go off and be a headhunter and then start my own agency or something like that after this world of experience that I've adapted from all these different companies and experiences. Yeah. You know, I, um, yeah, to, to go back to the very first question you asked, which is like, how did you get into recruiting? Um, mm-hmm. Was not, again, was not something I planned on. Um, was was not something that I really thought I would be doing mm-hmm. at any point, let alone long-term. Um, so here, you know, reflecting back on 10 years uh, now as a recruiter, it's been really interesting because I, like I, I enjoy what I, what I do and then I get to talk to people and I get to bring people into Bungie in ways that like, make them exceedingly happy and, um, you know, benefit the company and, and are like key initiatives, right? Hiring and talent acquisition. Um, these are things that are on every company's mind. And so the work that I do is really important. And I do like that. Um, I think more than anything, what has been cool about recruiting is it has given me a leg into companies that I would otherwise not have had an opportunity to work at. Right. Like, I am not a computer science major. Nope. Again, I'm, I'm not a game <laughs> totally, yeah, I'm not like, an artist, right? No. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to work at Bungie um, and in video games, which is something that I'm passionate about, had it not been for this kind of career track. Um, so I, I say all of that to say that, you know, it was very much an inroads for me in a company that I love and, and in an industry that I'm passionate about uh, personally. And so in that way, I don't anticipate exiting any anytime soon right because i'm no. just having too much fun um, great you know i think that all of that being said i don't know if i want to be a recruiter to, a recruiter yeah. forever right um mm-hmm. i think what has been really cool about this job is it's it's very um you know it's dependent on personal relationships and rapport building um, you have to be able to sort of enter a situation and digest a bunch of information and regurgitate it with a reasonable amount of um, clarity. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have to be able to talk to an engineering manager, understand what this senior gameplay engineer is going to be working on, and then speak to that job description with the candidate who, again, is an engineer, uh, with, you know, with the level of expertise that at least doesn't make me look like a complete fool. Um, and so like all of those skills and, and soft skills, I think are things that, um, could, you know, serve me well elsewhere. I, I don't know what that is necessarily, but, um, I would very much like to continue working at Bungie and potentially in different capacities, right. Whether that's yeah. production or, you know, um, community management or different, different things like that, that are, um, that do exist. No, I couldn't even imagine some of the conversations you have because I'm like, you know, some more way, like I love talking to people, more of a marketing guy, finance guy. It's like when I sometimes talk to construction people, I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, I totally get it. Like, yeah, yeah. That beam goes there. Like, Oh yeah. I got to put the foundation yeah. over there. The mm-hmm. electrical wires, they can't Joyce. go there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's just the same thing with you. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That line of code. Like, Oh, I totally understand what you're totally. doing. It's like, yeah. Oh, for sure. And you kind of, you just need to know enough to just hold the conversation and know you aren't a complete idiot. Yeah, um, what has been helpful is that like, at least there's a common ground, right? Like I can talk to someone and say, okay, so I understand we're hiring for an investment engineer in the context of destiny. Tell me what that means <laughs> in a game that I know and play and enjoy 
tell me what this person would be working on. And I can yeah. sort of relate that, right? And then you kind of find that least common denominator and work backwards and, and build your understanding around, you know, something that you, that you know and can relate to. Um, and then take that out into the world and sort of, you know, redirect it based on, on the conversations that you're having. Is every, and, then, and then at Bungie, is everybody a gamer? Like just everybody, it's like, oh yeah, I work at Bungie. Like I gotta play video games. Or it's like, no, it's just like you've seen like a Karen or somebody just kind of there. It's just like I just work at Bungie. I don't play any video games. This is just a job. Yeah, I I think that you have to you have to enjoy the medium of video games to work at a game studio. Um, cool. What has been surprising to me is that you don't have to enjoy our game to work at Bungie, right? Oh, whoa. I talk to a ton of people who don't play Destiny. Um, you know, they'd rather play Farmville. And like, and that's totally okay. Like it, it's 100%. not, and you, I think it's interesting because the Destiny so community true. is pretty hardcore. Um, Very. That's a, know, that's a like, really, it's like the Skyrim I mean, community. Yeah. And people will, I mean, people get into it and they, you know, they will go to war on behalf of our game or against it either way. Um, you know, and like they're a, a lot of the dev, a lot of the engineers, like they don't, they don't play destiny. Um, you know, and so it, it's kind of funny, but I think that like that common ground is, is super helpful for just kind of harmony within the company and, and being able to relate to your coworkers. Um, but yeah, it's that, that was a surprise for me when I came in is it, you know, not, not everyone is grinding destiny raids nine to five. Um, and so, uh, it, you, you know, you have to love games, but not necessarily our game. Cool, man. And then, and to kind of close it up, and I, I always ask this question at the end because it's just so fascinating to me is, is, is how do you define its success and what does it mean to you? Yeah, I, you know, I think one thing, um, so recruiting is a, is a subset of, of human resources, um, which, you know, I think is, the, the caricatures that you can make of human resources, right? Like I think about um, the show Archer and yeah. in the early seasons, Pam, the HR lady is like talking with soft puppets and it, you know, it, it's a very kind of touchy feely. Such a good show. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but you know, like there's kind of this idea that HR is about like your feelings and you can bring complaints to us. And it, you know, like uh, there's, there's kind of this like caricature of, of yeah. an HR person. Um, and you know, what, what I've come to find is, I mean, that can absolutely be true if, if you let it, but you know, when, when I do my best work is when I can tie it back to business goals or company directives, right? So mm -hmm. talent acquisition is not just hiring, right? But it is a means to an end and, and without the right people in the right seats, things don't get made and things don't get done. And so being able to sort of frame my day and the work that I do in the context of, you know, are we achieving company goals? How is closing these talent gaps furthering the mission of Bungie? Um, that feels really, really good. And it, it helps you um, kind of build connections with these hiring managers that I support, right? Because I'll oftentimes ask folks like, what is, what is hiring this person or not hiring this person mean for you manager in the context of, of your day and, and your performance review cycle. Like if we don't hire this person, what, what does that mean? Right. And sometimes I get really worried and they're like, I, I if, if we don't hire this person, I, you know, 
I can't do my job. The, the, the company misses this goal or ship date slips or, um, you know, I, I don't get my bonus or I can't yeah. spend more time with my kids. And sometimes we'll get that personal, right? Yeah. So being able to kind of have those conversations with people makes the work really fulfilling. Um, and then at the end of my day, if I can get to a point where, you know, the hiring manager says like, I heard you in that interview or I heard you talk to this candidate and I can't believe that you're not an engineer, right? And that doesn't happen often, but being able to experience um, and, and, you know, again, speak to candidates and job seekers with a level of understanding that is not typical of, you know, an HR person, um, I think is, is when you are a successful recruiter, right? When a hiring manager says, you got this, like I, listen to your spiel on our technology and it was spot on like I would trust you sending me candidates without me reviewing them if you said somebody was not a culture fit I would take you at your word um, you know it, it's not just about pushing resumes through the system like I managers want and respect my input on candidates like hey this person's not a fit they're they're too egotistical they're too concerned about compensation um, I don't think they have enough experience in this programming language or whatever it might be. Um, and they say, okay, we're not going to move forward with them. Um, and so those types of things, like when you sort of elevate yourself from being more transactional to more consultative, um, that's really when recruiting is adding value to the business. Dude, I don't know how else to end this besides that answer. So I really appreciate it, man. And um, I know you're relatively a private guy, but if, if somebody wants to find you and get in contact with you, what's kind of the best uh, form? Yeah, um, no, I appreciate you asking. I am on Twitter. Um, I and you know, I one thing that I love is we've got a, a super active Twitter community. So yeah. a lot of my tweets are either about our game or retweeting things that our devs and, and producers uh, have been sharing. So there's a ton of, you know, lore and backstory and kind of behind the scenes look like I, I sometimes tell people, you know, like, what's it like to work at a game studio? I tell like, think about if you were hired uh, into a movie studio, right? Like, you know, I, I know that you're like, you're, you're, you're a Marvel fan, right? Like, yeah, you love the huge. Movies. like if you got hired at Marvel studios, be a dream. Like, halfway through the MCU, right. And got to see, everything that had come before and you knew everything that was going to happen through in game. Like that's, I don't know how I would react. Right. I, I yeah. honestly don't. And so I kind of have that opportunity. So if you guys would like to check me out on Twitter, you can absolutely do that. Uh, my handle is at element 14 games. Mm -hmm. um, and my username is, is Brian hires. So you can find me there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'll be a ton of content about the studio, about the game. Um, and occasionally tidbits and nuggets of information around resume, interview tips, um, what that process looks like. Um, and then we also have a Bungie Careers um, Twitter handle as well. So you'll see job posts come out from there, employee spotlight videos, but another way to engage with Bungie if you're interested in knowing more about jobs and what it's like to work there. Awesome, man. Really appreciate it. You're, you're the man. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Awesome. Hey, good catching up, man. See you later. See you later.